Welcome to On Boys Parenting Podcast, the podcast that explores and explains boy behavior. We are your co-hosts, Jennifer L.W. Fink of buildingboys.net and Janet Allison, founder of boysalive.com. Our guest today is a beloved preschool teacher. And even if you feel like your kids are out of the preschool phase, I know you are going to find many, many strategies, tips, and insights in our conversation today with Teacher Tom that will benefit you and all of your relationships. Stay tuned for Teacher Tom and our conversation. Listeners, I know that you sometimes feel like your home is bursting with the boundless energy of your boys. Mine has been for a very long time. We want to tell you about Home Threads where style meets the wild adventures of raising boys. At homethreads.com, you can find a collection of uh, furniture and home accessories designed to meet the needs of your growing boy family. They have everything from durable bunk beds to upscale gaming tables. You can turn your home into an attractive, durable playground, believe it or not. Uh, Janet and I both love their baking dishes, solid, beautiful, functional. Anything you need for your home, you can likely find on homethreads.com, and we have a discount code for you. Go to homethreads.com slash onboys. You can get a code for 15% off your first order, because every leap, laugh, and loud moment deserves a space that embraces the chaos with style. Home Threads, love where you live. When I mention the name of our guest to many parents, there is usually an exclamation of awe and delight, and then an, oh, I love him, usually follows. Known to all as Teacher Tom, our guest is able to interpret the young child in a way that helps parents and teachers see the wisdom of young children. He encourages us to step back and observe as their development unfolds in a natural way. This is the foundation of play-based education and the foundation of parenting your child by paying keen attention to who he is, not who you or society thinks he ought to be, nurturing the unhurried unfolding of a child. Teacher Tom is masterful in interpreting young minds and young bodies for us, showing us how to love and support each unique being. Welcome, Tom. Well, thank you. I'm glad to be here. Great to have you. You know, there's so, so many directions this conversation could go. And I, I'm curious, most of all, of course, I'm sure you get asked this all the time. You are a male in a very female profession of early childhood. Tell us about that. Well, first of all, I am incredibly, you know, I'm actually honored that I've been accepted in the sisterhood, um, you know, because this is more of a sorority than anything else. And I, and, and it is a provider. I mean, like, you know, when I look at my readership and all my blog and the things I do, it's, you know, it's 97% women, um, you know, parenting, whether we want it to be or not, whether that's the right thing or not, parenting is, is generally speaking a female profession and it's our occupation. 
and or at least a concern, right? I mean, I mm -hmm. think there's a lot of a lot of fathers do parenting. They just maybe don't read or listen to the experts or something. I and I don't I can't explain that. So for me, my experience has been, you know, it's been incredible. I mean, honestly, uh, my situation, you know, Woodland Park Cooperative School, uh, I have never had to worry about, you know, the suspicions that some men get and the, the, the fears that people have, because, you know, I work in a classroom that has, you know, anywhere from five to 11 other adults in the room in the form of parents. Mm -hmm. And so we're all on each other's radar all the time. So there's just no room, you know, there's yeah. no room for suspicion. Um, and so for me, that's that's been a blessing to have it be that way. And I've never really had my gender come into play um, any overt way that I'm aware what? of. I think I have had benefits of being a male. I think some people, um, a lot single mothers sometimes will say, well, I want a male influence in my child's life or something, or, um, you know, lesbian uh, parents uh, okay. have often chosen chosen my school. And I know there's a lot of people who, who just wanted specifically we're looking for a male teacher which is not necessarily fair um so i, I benefited from that mm -hmm. what drew you to pursue early childhood as a profession and i realize asking that question it's a stupid question i'm going to assume it is you know a love and care for young children but it's not necessarily an easy path to choose when you're in a society that doesn't really lay that out as a option in the same way that it does for women yeah, no, I, you know, honestly, though, you're kind of your assumption sort of wrong. Um, I, yes, it is. I, it really has more to do that. I like playing with kids. I love uh, it. That's really the big reason that I got into this is that when my daughter was young, I, we were in a cooperative school. So that meant I went to school with her, um, you know, for three years, her first part. And so I was, I was there in the classroom. I was working as an assistant teacher and I just, I just, I found my home. It was just so much fun to go in every day and play with those two-year-olds and those three-year-olds and those four-year-olds and, and uh, so when she moved on to big kid school, I stayed behind. <laughs> I love it. She moved up and you're like, actually, this play thing is pretty sweet. Honey, you go learn. I'm staying here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, she was learning even while she was playing. Oh, absolutely. 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 You know, you mentioned the suspicion thing. Can mm -hmm. we dig into that for just of course. a moment? Because I have a brother. I have four brothers and I have a sister. One of my brothers um, went into early childhood, uh, uh, worked in daycares at first. And I don't know you very well yet, but like you, he is amazing at seeing children and playing with them and connecting with them. And he can be on the level of a child for a long time in a way that a lot of adults sort of struggle with, right? He can yep. get right in there. And he has struggled with it as a profession due to suspicions of some parents and some coworkers. There is a heightened awareness in our culture of, you know, abuse and sexual mm -hmm. abuse and sexual abuse of children. And nobody wants this for their child. And in some corners, there is this idea that, well, if you are a man working around children, you must certainly have an ulterior motive. Well, I mean, I think that among some people, for sure, that's among that's some people, boring. certainly not everybody, but that's not everybody. And, and you know, well, and it's 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 sort of a knee jerk thing. And honestly, you know, statistically, they're right. I mean, you know, at least the people we bust, you know, are overwhelmingly men. So I'm not going to say that people are, are invalid in their concerns. And that's why I think transparency has been so important to him. And it makes me sad when I hear about uh, men and men who, you know, would, they, they can't change the diaper for example, because somehow that's going to be a, a, an opportunity to do something nefarious. 
Um, and it, it does make me sad. And I think it really actually, in some ways, why we have to ask ourselves the question, why do men do this more often? Yeah. Why is this? Why is this a problem? And, you know, and I, and I think in part, it's sort of in part the way we raise our boys. Mm -hmm. um, I think that as and I'm not saying any individuals at fault for this. I'm saying that it's uh, that we have a cultural issue right now with with how we're raising our young boys. But, you know, the truth is, is that you know, my as far as I'm concerned, it's like I know I had one parent one time come to me and she said, you know, I can't tell my own father, the grandfather. I can't tell him my daughter has a male preschool teacher because he would he would tell, he would make me withdraw her the next day. Wow. Um, so there's there's some hard and fast things where people feel like, it, you know, and, and of course, you know, I personally uh, really bridle when somebody tries to tell me or anyone what they can do based on their gender. Absolutely. Um, I have been a lifelong feminist. I have mm -hmm. I started using that label when I was, you know, 17 years old, 16 years old, and I've stuck to it throughout my life because I really believe that feminism is good for all of us, mm -hmm. including our men and boys. Yeah. And so to kind of flip it a little bit, how do we begin to change the script around raising boys, developing boys, letting boys know that it's great to be a nurturer of children. It's great to be a teacher of children. We are all clamoring for more male role models yeah. for our kids. And yet we've closed the door. Hopefully, you know, we can open it a little bit yeah. for letting our boys know that this is this is a track that they can take in their in their lives. And I don't think that we generally talk to our boys about, you know, you can go into early childhood education, you can be an elementary school teacher. It's just not spoken about. How can we shift that? Well, I think it starts way before we get to thinking about career, right? I mean, because, you know, I'm, I work with preschoolers, so I'm thinking about preschoolers, you know, and the proper career aspiration for a five-year-old is princess. I mean, that, you know, and no matter what your gender is, right? Exactly. Um, you know, that that's the proper, I mean, that that kind of, they shouldn't be thinking about career. Um, to me, though, it starts off with, you know, because we, 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 in our culture, we do have a society where men are lonely. Uh, men have higher suicide rates. Men have, the, men are more prone to violence, um, more prone to, you know, like, um, uh, you know, well, sexual abuse and things like that. I mean, we, and, and I don't think that's in the nature of men. I think it's in, it's somehow in the nature of how we're raising men and part of a big piece of it, a huge part of it is, is around emotions around emotions. I mean, I always say that, you know, the only ones who are really allowed as men are, you know, anger and, you know, basically that's the only one we get, right. Yeah. We can't be afraid because you can be happy. Anger yeah, happy. right. You can have the positive emotion, but as far as the you know so-called negative emotions, you know we have to pretend we have to be angry. Um, mm -hmm. That's the one we're allowed in public, right? Women aren't, but men, men are. I'm just generally speaking, right? Yes. And yes. and we, we can see it as young as you know four and five year old boys. Suddenly they start walling off their emotions a lot more because they're getting the messages uh, from. I mean, they're subtle messages too. I mean, and people want to blame the media, um, but we can overcome the media as parents, as, a, as important adults in a child's life, the media is not more powerful than us, especially if we partake in the media alongside our children mm -hmm. and share our point of view. But we, but I think even the way we treat, I mean, I remember Piaget, I mean, this was, you know, a long time ago in some of his research, you know, we just do subtle things differently. Like, like parents tend to hold their little girl babies facing them and little boy babies facing out. 
Um, they tend to let their little boy babies go a little farther away from them than their little babies. So we treat them differently. And I think we treat their emotions differently. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's this mentality of we don't want our boys to grow up to be pansies, right? We, because they cry. You know, I mean, where's the, I mean, there is masculine crying. There is crying is is a is a it's cathartic. It's important. Mm -hmm. um, and being able to express your fears, to be afraid of things. You know, oh, don't be afraid. We're much more likely to tell our boys this, and then that gets compounded by messages in the media. Um, mm -hmm. So to me, I think it's it's is 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 letting our young our boys know. I mean, all of our children know, boys and girls, yeah. and and any non-binary, every gender there is. Um, to let them know that, you know what, they're, whatever you feel, it's okay to feel that. And, you wrote a yeah. blog post, and we will definitely link to your blog. It has been an amazing resource for me through my parenting journey for many years now. And uh, you don't even know this yet, but I quoted from one of your blog posts in a book that I have coming out soon. And the specific blog post was from 2019 and you wrote about an experience with a child who was sad and you wrote that um, sitting, you were talking about sitting with a sad child is almost always helpful. And I quoted you because you wrote, the goal is not to end the crying, but to create a space in which he could finish his cry. Wow. That is how we do this in practice. Talk about how you make space for emotions in your preschool, because so often preschool is such a critical time for when kids get these gendered messages. Well, um, I mean, really for me, you know, when I first started teaching, I was the master distractor. Right. That was my, that was one of my, yeah, one of the skills I would get praised for this, right? I'd be, mm -hmm. I would get, you know, it'd be say, you know, a kid would be crying because mommy had left and, and, and I would, you know, I'd be like, oh, you're sad. Your mommy left. Oh, look, twice, you know, and I'd get them yeah. all involved in, you know, and get them excited about something. And, and, you know, what I noted is, you know, usually they'd get engaged for five minutes, maybe seven minutes, and then, you know, then start whimpering again. And then I'd have to distract them again, right? Oh, oh. look, more toys, you know, and I, but I've come to understand how incredibly disrespectful that is. Um, despite the kudos I was getting for my ability to sort of make the kids, you know, and really what what that does, you know, and, and sometimes a parent or a, an adult might threaten to punish a child for their, oh, you know, that's, you know, if you stop, don't stop behaving that way or mm -hmm. offer a reward like, ah, oh, no, if you stop doing that now, I'll get you a lollipop so I can do my grocery shopping. And we, yep. and we do all these kind of things and what emotions have a natural arc, right? There's a beginning, there's a middle and there's an end. And what we do when we threaten punishments, when we distract, when we, you know, whatever, we stop them from experiencing that full arc of the emotion. And so they don't learn that they're capable of coming out on the other side on their own. And so for me, that's the mentality I go in with a kid. I, I was, um, when, and I'm going to talk about my daughter real quick. When she was little, I remember there was one time and she came home from school and, you know, and it, this was, she was four years old. And she was having this hard time with another girl at school. She really wanted to play with this girl. And the girl was, I mean, basically an introvert and really didn't really want to play with my high energy daughter as much. And so she'd get rebuffed a lot. And she was bawling and she was in bed bawling one time. And I'm trying to be a good dad. I'm there beside her. I'm giving some philosophy, some strategies, <laughs> some ideas of what she could do, you know, just trying to coach her through it. And she pulled herself together enough to look at me and say, Papa, I want you to leave now. <laughs> I have to finish my cry. And that phrase became our family's mantra. 
around emotions. Because when I told my wife about this story you know, mm-hmm. later on, she said, that's what I want you to do with me too. And I think, especially as a man, I think so often we think, and I think women feel this way, especially in, in roles of te- being a teacher or a parent, that, that we have to fix it, right? If somebody's yeah. trying that it's our job to, I'm going to come in and I'm going to save the day. And, you know, this is, that's not what people want. It's like my wife said, you know, I know what to do. I just want to cry. I just want you to come and stroke my, you know, stroke my forehead. Yeah. And so, you know, so this story you're telling me about, you know, that you mentioned from the blog post, a little, that was a little boy named Zane. And he, you know, he'd never been left before. And he, he was, he was bawling and he was, he had just sat himself on the floor and he was immovable and just un, incons, inconsolable, it seemed. And so I just sat down, sat there with him. And, and, and I asked him, so first, I think it's also respectful. We, you know, I don't touch a child unless I ask first, I'm except in emergency type situations, but I, you know, and I said, you know, do you want me to hold you? No, he didn't. You know, I mean, I could, he could, he through his blubbering. I could make that out. Um, you want me to, you know, kind of put me and I kind of rub your back and I, you know, this, no, no, no. So I just sat there with him. I said, so I'm just going to sit here with you while you finish your cry. And so, you know, right there, I used that phrase because yeah. I wanted to know I'm, I'm here for the long haul. I'm not going to be here. I'm not here to do anything other than that. As he cried, he started saying, no, I want my mommy to come back. And I could hear him saying that. And, and, and I, you know, and I would, re- I was repeating back to him, you know, just trying to show I'm listening, right? I'm reflecting. there with you. I'm reflecting. So I said, you know, I want your mommy to come back too. I want my mommy to come back. Well, I want your mommy to come back too. And I'm saying this in a very, just a calm way, a matter of fact way. I wanted him to know that we're on, you know, we, we share that I understood him, but he kept getting louder. I want my mommy to come back. And finally he just looked at me and he actually stopped crying for a second. And he said, I want my mommy to come back. And that's what I, that's what I realized that he didn't give a damn what I thought about his mommy. <laughs> yeah. He, yeah. he wanted, about you, teacher Tom. He needed me to. He needed to know that I heard what he said and that I understood it. And so I said, oh, "You want your mommy to come back." And what was so wonderful about that was that at that moment, then he stood up. It didn't, you know, like my job wasn't to finish the cry, but I created the space where he get on. He could get on with his life of doing, right? He could get on with with his activities. He was still crying for a while. But instead of just sitting there immobile on the floor, he was actually, you know, he was coloring with some crayons and he kind of got busy and he kind of, and then he, what he got, and I love the fact that he had this experience never again, did he have a crying jag when his mom left? Um, he had sort of had the experience. He knew that he was going to be okay and that he could take care of himself. He didn't have to have somebody there with him. And that's because, because I just let it happen. And look at the self-advocacy he also learned too, because you created space and because you listened to him and you didn't try and shut him down, he was able to look at you and say, I want my mom back. For it reminded me so much of my daughter correcting me in that moment too. It's just, <laughs> yeah. Kids have taught me pretty much everything I know. I have a logistical question though. Now I've never been a preschool teacher. I have never... Um, you know, had to be responsible for all these children in a classroom, but I have been a parent of four and four is much smaller than your average preschool class. And yet my challenge so often was, okay, I've got this kid crying and I want to be with him and make this space for him to finish his cry. And I want to let him know that I'm there for him. Meanwhile, this other kid is attempting to, you know, scale the kitchen table and I'm a little, I feel like my hands need to be here so he doesn't fall down. 
Can you give any practical advice or reassurance for parents who are like, yeah, Tom, that sounds great, but how, how do I find the space to be with this child? Right. Well, I mean, you know, first of all, I just will mention that I mentioned before we're a cooperative school. So that would mean that I have lots of other adults in the room. So I can, you know, that this is the beauty of the cooperative model. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I do think most institutional settings um, are understaffed. Uh, yeah. We definitely need more, especially in the early years, we need more arms and legs in love um, yes. to take care of these kind of things, you know, and, and I do think, and I just, you know, I'm sorry, I, I sometimes I, I, I'm going to go off on a little tangent here and come back. Tangents are good. Uh, well, I just, you know, to me, we've really done a number on families and society in the last, I don't know, 60 years or so. Um, increasingly, our children spend their days in this place over here called preschool, you know, and then and then parents are all going to this place called work. And then we've taken our seniors, right? And we've got them in, in nursing homes or in, in, in senior centers over here. And what we, this is our village, right? This is the village that children are supposed to be raising the kids. Alison Gopnik, you know, talks about how humans are among the only animals who, you know, for whom the female doesn't die right after she starts, you know, after she hits menopause. Right. Because we have this we've evolved grandparents because grandparents need to be involved. So human children are young. They they are designed and nature has designed us. We need more than one parent around. We need it takes it takes a village is literally true for humans because they need us for at least 10 years. Um, probably, probably more are, you know, in our current, current way we do it, they need, need us for 20 years. Yeah. And, and of course, you always want your parents. So what we've done is we've created this, in, this little hothouse for parents, we've made parenting unnecessarily difficult yes. um, by removing children from the center of society. Because if you look at most of human history, children were always right in the middle of society. They went to work with people. They were right there while the hunters were hunting and the gatherers were gathering. They were there at all the community meetings. And still to this day, you see it in indigenous populations like uh, the Maoris in New Zealand. You know, when they have community meetings, I mean, the babies are all there. And if so now we start- have to officially teach our kids things yeah. that historically they learned by being around by the role modeling by living it with us now it's like you're here the adults are here the grandparents are here well and school is the most artificial of all the environments yeah because a school typically i mean i've tried to make my school in a place that's like life um that's a place where you have your con where what you're there to do is get together with the other people and do projects and have your conflicts and work them out. And, you know, we call it play-based, but really what it is, is there's a lot of bickering involved in that too. And, but this is how we learn to get along with each other. So now I'm going to come around to, this is, this is the kind of thing that I, you know, do with parents is, as I usually say, you know, in these kind of circumstances, number one, I think the idea is to prioritize the people who need support with their emotions. Right. So if you have so and and, and make it a family priority. So very often, like I know in some classrooms, some of the educators I know who are in situations where they're alone in a room with kids or they don't have enough support is what they do is they make this sort of sitting with somebody with emotions, a collective activity. Um, It's one of these things where the other children are involved in it, too. And so often when I'm sitting, you know, I told that story about Zane, but, you know, I wasn't the only one there. There were four or five kids milling around there too, sort of keeping an eye on what was going on. Kids always, when this happens, other children will bring over like a toy they think they might want. They 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 take their own efforts. I mean, they get rebuffed, mm-hmm. you know, quite They're a bit. They're trying, but they but they yes, because they see that this is a community responsibility. This is every, you know, if somebody's really upset, let's all kind of take care of them for a minute. Let's all you know hang out with them and find out. 
um, what, what's going on. I know that a lot of people, what they do is, you know, like your kids, you have yes spaces in your household. That's one of the things a lot of parents have started doing. It's like, you know, and maybe in those kind of circumstances where you got too many, you know, the kids go to their yes space and a yes space is a place where you're not worried about things getting broken. Yeah. You're not worried about kids getting hurt. So it can be a garage. It can be a bedroom. It can be a you know basement. It can be a fenced off area somewhere, a backyard. Every parent needs these, right? If, if you don't have a yes space for your kid, then you are making your job way too hard. Here's some uh, experienced parent advice. The bigger you can make that space, the more it eventually expands to encompass your house, the easier your job Yes. Yeah, exactly. And especially, you know, like a backyard. I mean, that's what we had when I was a kid. We didn't even have a backyard. We had a whole neighborhood, right? Yeah. Mom would say, you're driving me crazy. Go outside. And she would open up the door. And I mean, I'd be four years old and she would close the door behind me and she didn't expect to see me again until she yelled out for me on top, come home, um, which often was all day. Yeah. <laughs> and so, and you would go, go outside and you, so you were out there and you had the whole neighborhood and, and you know what? What's wonderful about outdoors is usually we don't care that much about it because, you know, part of playing, part of exploring your world is, is to test things till they break. And you don't want that happening in the living room, right? <laughs> I mean, I don't know if you, you guys remember this, but there were a lot of families. Mine wasn't this, but literally there was plastic covers over the living room furniture. The kids weren't allowed in there. <laughs> You're you know, dating you, yourself, Tom. <laughs> exactly. And you would know, you would know for sure that that's not the room to go in. And then yeah. some of the dads would, you know, or dads, right? Gender, I'm genderizing it here. Some of the, the fathers would put plastic wrap over their cars because if it didn't, the kids are going to open the doors and get in because nobody locked their cars back then. And you're going to play inside the car. Unfortunately, my dad let us play inside the car, but down the, you know, I had other neighbors who wouldn't. And so I, I think that these yes spaces, the bigger, the better. You're right about that. I mean, if you can get a whole neighborhood, that's even better than a, um, you know, I don't think we're going back to that era no. anytime soon. But the more we can make our home environments and our school environments into yes spaces, the better we're going to, the more that we're going to have the opportunities to do the more important things like be with a child mm -hmm. and help them, you know, be with them as they finish their yeah. life. Yeah. I'm curious because we are on boys here. So I'm curious what your observations are about boys and their friendships and how boys interact in making friends in joining together in play um you know and again you know i, I this is i should never i know we're testing you whenever you're talking about gender you tend to get into trouble right and so i'm going to say i'm going to talk about there's, there's a tendency right tendency there's typical tendency. Tendency. The, boy, the kids we yes. identify as boys have this tendency yeah um I hear from parents all the time how bath time can be such an ordeal. And yet bath time can be really fun. In fact, here in the very cold winter, we use bath time as an activity. Dabble and Dollop has got this dialed in because they have bath products that are not only natural, healthy, free of toxins, all the things we want for our kids, but they're fun. Jen, you said when your boys were young, they loved to make potions. My son, Tyler, had so much fun mixing things together, making potions, recipes. He would have loved Dabble and Dollop's Day at the Beach bath mixing set because it's a collection of soap scents and a little mixing thing. And your kids can combine scents and make their own creations. It is exactly the kind of thing that can turn bath time into a fun, enjoyable, 
creative endeavor instead of just a fight. And I will say the bubbles have been bow tested in the bathtub and they last. They stay bubbles for a long time. Dabble and Dollop has everything from bath time shampoos, bubble baths, body washes, conditioners, lotions, bath bombs, bath toys, and accessories. There's so many things to explore at Dabble and Dollop. Go to dabbleanddollop.com slash onboys to get 20% off your first order. That's dabbleanddollop.com slash onboys, 20% off for being an onboys listener. You know, first of all, they love their friends. I mean, this is the reason, like two-year-olds come to school, you know, because just somebody told them to come. You know, maybe they come because the toys, maybe the three-year-olds come because the toys are kind of fun or the environment's kind of fun. But by the time they're like four and five years old, they're coming for the other kids. Yeah. And 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 they're coming because it's, it's true love. They don't care about teacher Tom. They don't care about the other adults in the room. They're coming there and they, they're, and it's so wonderful because they're so excited to see each other every day, right? You've seen this and these, you know, and they're giggly and they're, you know, excited and they run around really fast. So they They remind me of puppies. They're very much like puppies. It's the same level of excitement and, and it's often physical at that age, you know, they're, they're tumbling all over each other and they have to be in, in contact like puppies are yeah well and for me this is a this is okay this is something i'm gonna i'm gonna say something that'll really get me into trouble here i think this is one of the things some female teachers struggle with yes uh, compared to male teachers is that mm-hmm. is that that physicalness is not violence it's the opposite when they start wrestling around boy that's to me that's an act of love mm-hmm. and when i watch that 90 percent of the time that's what it is and we sit there and say no no wrestling no wrestling no wrestling mm-hmm. or you know if you're really conscious of your language, you're saying, um, you know, this is not the wrestling time. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the truth is, is, is some of these boys don't ever have that chance. And, and, and either they, their siblings are too young or they don't have siblings. And so in most schools, ban it. Yeah. So this is why for us, you know, for me, I want to give them that chance. Because if you watch two boys wrestling, most of the time, they are paying so close attention to one another's bodies and their facial expressions. I mean, half the time they're looking into each other's eyes as they're wrestling. And in it, in it, it is, it is a beautiful thing to see. Um, and we have, a, it's an official part of our curriculum at our school. I mean, we lay down the gym mats and we say it's wrestling time. And I love uh, it. And we talk about beforehand, right? We all sit down together and, and we say, okay, so what are our agreements around this, right? Does anybody want their eyes poked? No. Does anybody want their hair pulled? No. Does anybody want their neck choked? No. Okay. So let's just keep our hands off people's heads, right? All right. So does anybody want to get hit? No. Hitting is not part of wrestling. Does anybody want to get kicked? No. So we talk and we talk through very specifically, what are these things that we're going to agree to? And we don't call them rules. We call them agreements. The agreement is when you're on the mats, you don't get to opt out of the wrestling until you say stop. And if somebody says stop, everybody has to stop. And we set up, we always, and I, we try to prepare for everything. Well, you know, wrestling's rough. Sometimes people get hurt. So if you're going to cry, you can't wrestle while you're crying, right? You can't wrestle while you're mad. So there's a crying chair over there. You go sit in the crying chair until you're ready to come back. And so anytime, so, you know, strong emotions that can make it get out of hand. So that's then my job there is to, the adult's job is just to be with them and remind them of their agreements. I, I want to remind you that we said no hands on the head, no hands in the hair. I want to remind you, no hitting people. And it's just beautiful to watch them. They'll just pig pile each other and there'll be this big <laughs> pile of four or five. And normally when you are working with children, 
you need to allow young children at least 12 to 15 seconds after you say something before you can they can respond because it just it, the instantaneous thing is just not there and that's a problem a lot of parents get into yeah and this is actually I'll go, I'll go into this more if you want me to this is especially true for boys you mm-hmm. need to give them time to process what you've said mm-hmm. before you can expect a response but when they're wrestling it's instantaneous because yeah. they're so focused that they're listening to everything they're focused on everything so for me that's uh, when we take that away from our children because what i have found and this is again this is on boys but i, I got to talk about girls sometimes too that's okay <laughs> when you make it part of the curriculum and you make it allowed the girls are there equally with the boys yes boys are just more likely to spontaneously start wrestling mm-hmm. and they are surrounded with cultural messages that say this is okay whereas girls aren't necessarily exactly exactly but once we you know and the truth is is that the girls tend to be bigger and stronger so you know yeah. they hold their own easy <laughs> you know it's so interesting to me. Uh, I've been parenting for 20 plus years now. You mentioned, you know, that there's a lot of concern about how we raise our boys, uh, moms of boys, especially and dads too, but uh, we're very conscious. None of us want to raise a predator. None of us want to raise a violent man. So in some cases, we're like, we see this tendency to what looks often to female eyes, like attack mm-hmm. and a tendency and an interest towards violence. And I'm putting air quotes around these things as something to stop. No, don't wrestle. That's violent. Don't do that. But if you listen carefully to what you're saying, when kids do this, you're facilitating preschoolers, but there are all kinds of lessons about consent Mm -hmm. being built into that, which is really what we want to be teaching our kids awareness of the other person and respect for the other person kids can learn that through wrestling they can learn it through yeah they should learn it through wrestling but in general in thinking about those agreements uh when you're thinking about those agreements you're not just thinking about yourself you're thinking about the other people Mm -hmm. and at one point and this is we this is how we run our whole classroom right that we don't i don't give any rules the kids always make their own agreements with each other about how they want to treat each other and usually within the first day they've got all the big ones no hitting no kicking no biting i mean it just comes up right Right. and and they know how they want to be treated um one year and this was so it was really an interesting moment they one of the kids suggested, let's agree that you don't do anything to anybody unless you ask them first. Wow. And that was just, and it was, and everybody agreed, right? Because we only do this if it's consensus. So everybody had this idea. Everybody agreed to this. And it was fascinating because, you know, it would be, it got to the level where they'd say, you looked at me and you didn't ask me. <laughs> right. And so, and so, you know, we saw, we saw kind of like the slippery slope. We saw that, you know, all the different things, but it's great because it gets great just for them to be exploring these nuances, right? Because this isn't just like, it's not as cut and dried as people want to make it sound. There's a lot of things because we do, we're, we're social animals. We interact with one another. Um, and, and, you know, but around, certainly around things like physical touch, I think part of it is that role modeling. Like when I ask a child, do you, yeah. do you want me to pick you up? Or can I hold your hand or something like that? So um, I think our role modeling that too. And I also think sharing our observations, um, like if you're, wa- if you're watching a TV show and you see something happen where, you know, consent wasn't given or something like that, talk about it. Say, boy, I wonder how she felt when he grabbed her hair like that. 
I bet, you know, and, and, and especially with our boys, as again, I'm talking about, nah, that's terrible. That's bad. Because we want our boys to grow up feeling that way. I think it'll, you know, this toxic masculinity thing has got to go. We need to draw it into it because it is, you know, toxic. I want to go a different direction here and talk about, you talk about confusion, bewilderment, perplexity, and how that is that idea of not knowing. I talk about wonder and awe and the importance of curiosity and wonder. And it seems like we are the Google generation, right? We pull out, you know, we see a bug, we see a bird, we pull out the phone and identify it. Talk about that place of just being in the mystery with young children. Well, I mean, it's a blessing and a curse, right? The, the era of bar bets is over, right? Yes. You can't sit there and, and argue about who had the highest batting average in 1957 uh, because somebody's just going to whip out their phone and tell you the answer. Um, and the, the good part about that, of course, is that we don't have to store all this trivia in our heads anymore, right? And we're kind of understanding what, what, tri- what the trivia is. The trivia is not the important stuff. And we, we live in this place, you know, and I think we've made a big mistake, uh, in the way we do schooling and education uh, in our country around the world, really, where we focus so much on the right answer, mm-hmm. right? We focus on that. It's all about right answers. It's all about, and I say, no, you can always find the right answer. Just ask Google. No, mm-hmm. the, the focus should be on asking the right questions. The focus should be on, on, on what do you think? The focus should, the focus should be on thinking, you know, critical thinking, thinking about yeah. stuff. And, and Eleanor Duckworth, who's um, a fabulous, she's a protege of Piaget, who I mentioned before. Um, she writes, you know, that the, the difference between thinking and learning is indistinguishable. It's not the right answer that makes the thinking important. It's the process of thinking mm. and thinking, and you might get to a wrong answer, but that does, it's not the adult's job to step in and correct them. It's the adult's job to observe this, to understand it, and to create scenarios in which the child can continue exploring that question so that then they can eventually come to the answers for themselves. So this, this cult of the right answer, you know, all the standardized testing and all this other stuff, it's just all about, we, we can't test the thinking, which is what the learning is. Because all, if all it is is right answers, that's memorizing. And yeah. you know what? Google's doing the memorizing for us. We don't have to. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So give us a, for instance, what does this look like in your classroom, supporting the wonder and supporting the thinking without trying to direct to the right answer? Well, the first thing is, is that my number one job is to observe, right? So my job is to watch a child. And I'll give you a great example. I mean, I always make this argument. Okay, what, what play-based education is about is freeing children to ask and answer their own questions, right? Following you know, as Janet said, curiosity, right? So there was one time, okay, I'll give you a great example. There was a boy named Henry and uh, he was, he, he, we have this um, traffic cylinder, you know, like they're on the freeways and they, they, we somehow ended up with some on our playground. I'm not saying anybody stole them, but they're out there. The kids just, I, there was, one year actually, there was a boy who was just obsessed with caution cones. And so our, as a school, we started collecting them because he had he was struggling at school. So we're trying to make it really comfortable. So we ended up with like 50 of them. Um, and so, you know, now we can always save parking spots when we want to. Uh, right? um, so anyway, this boy, and this is a big heavy thing and he had it on his shoulder and he was carrying it. And I'm just watching him do this. And I, it, he seemed pretty purposeful. And instead of saying, you know, what are you doing? I just said, you know what? I'm just gonna watch. I'm gonna observe, I'm gonna be a researcher. 
Because to me, that's the number one job. And honestly, after safety and food, clothing and shelter, I think a parent's job is to be a researcher too. Mm-hmm. Um, to, I, but my, especially as a teacher, our job is to be a researcher. So I'm watching, I'm saying, what is he up to? What is he doing? And he actually took this thing and he arranged, put it on the ground and he arranged it very specifically. And I'm, I'm watching him do this thinking he's got something in mind. And he climbed up on this crate that was beside it and he jumped off and crack, he broke it. And this, I couldn't help myself. I said, Henry, would you do that for? And he said, uh, I wanted to see if I could break it. Duh. Right. I mean, yeah. Stupid question. he had, he, well, he had, he had clearly, I mean, it was so obvious what he had done is he had had a question. Yep. He had set up an experiment like any scientist would do Yes. and he tested it out and he had an answer. Yes, he can break it. And, you know, we can talk about property and all this stuff. And I, this, this was a special circumstance because this is our outdoor playground. Everything yeah. out there is broken already. This is a yes phase. <laughs> um, so the fact that he broke it, you know, wasn't really a big deal. Um, but what I love about this is when you watch children, there's always a question, right? There's always a question behind what they're doing. You might not be able to de- determine what it is because we can't live inside of other people's heads. And the truth is, and this is one of the great fallacies around education, is that no teacher, no matter how brilliant they are, knows what's going on inside of somebody else's head. I have no idea what somebody's learning at any given moment. I only can say they are learning because they appear to be thinking. And so what I, so for me, this is, this is why staying out of his best and then provide the scaffolds, right? Provide mm-hmm, the mm-hmm. opportunities, you know, for the children. So basically what we're there to offer, I'm mean, familiar with the concept of loose parts, mm-hmm. loose parts play, but that's what we're there to do. We're there to be another loose part and our language, the words that come out of our mouth should also be loose parts for the kids rather than commands, rather than questions, rather than these things that direct the children, guide them. For our listeners, will you explain loose parts? Well, loose parts is a theory, and this was um, it was actually um, first proposed back in, uh, I'm going to say, 71 uh, by an architect, a landscape architect. And his idea was, you know, that in, in physical spaces, the architects get to have all the fun and th- that the rest of us get there and everything's fixed, right? They've already figured out where the walls go and the rocks go and the, st- and the chairs and tables and windows and everything else. And so he said, the more our spaces can be composed of loose parts where individuals, so he, he, he was proposing museums be this way, libraries be this way, that all public buildings be kind of loose part facilities where everybody, but specifically when it comes to schools, because what we have right now is this culture of toys. And, and I'm not, I, I actually know why toys become, became associated with childhood, but for 99% of human history, there was no such thing as toys. Mm-hmm. Um, what a toy was, was that you found a stick and the stick was your wand or your weapon or your or it became a person and or you found a rock. And what's great is that toys have scripts built into them. Mm-hmm. And so they are very they're, they're very directive with children. They take children. I mean, even with you look at something that's pretty open ended like Legos, right? Lego is everybody loves Legos, right? Everybody loves playing with Lego. But now they put them in these kits, right? The specific thing that has to be built you used to just get a big. It, with directions. And half the time the father builds it and it sits on a counter and you can't like, I'll never forget one kid. He's so happy. I went to his house and and, and he had like the Death Star from Star Wars. And it was a massive, you know, a massive construction, but his father had put it together and the boy wouldn't even let me touch it. Oh. You know, you should be able to smash that thing apart because the destiny of things you build with blocks is to break them back into loose parts, unscripted items that children could put together in odd ways. I mentioned my playground before. I mean, are we have, oh, we have, we don't have a slide. 
We have some swings, but otherwise we have shipping pallets, we have spare tires, we have you know planks of wood, we have everything down to like those florist marbles. We've probably scattered you know twenty five thousand out there, so kids are constantly <laughs> finding them and collecting them. Just a loose part out there, and they. It's amazing. And so what happens is children, then it, it's a creative environment for them. Yeah. So for me, our language should be the same way. They can, you know, making informational statements, statements of fact, and statements about our opinions, give children something to think about rather than something that they have to obey or disobey. Observing of a child and noticing purpose is such a powerful tool. And it's something that I, I did that when my kids were little. Um, and that really was kind of how we homeschooled for seven and a half years. I wrote a blog post and I'll, I'll share the link. Fourth of July celebration. My youngest was maybe, I think he was like six. He was probably first grade. And I live in a small town, right? So after the fireworks, the lights go back on on the ball field and all the kids run down and run the bases. Like mm-hmm. everybody, small kids, big kids, everybody. And I noticed from afar that my youngest was army crawling between home plate and first base. Okay, why? I don't know. Why do kids do the things they do? Whatever, (laughs) he's down there, he's fine. Um, Then he rounded first and he kept going, army crawling to second base. At this point, I'm a little concerned because like there's a lot of kids running and my child is on the ground. But I also noticed that he had another friend who was watching him kind of seemed to be supporting whatever's happening here. I just let this happen. He army crawled all the way around to home plate. And when he did, his friend was there and you could just see this celebration. Like he accomplished something again. I don't really know what he's trying to accomplish or why he's trying to accomplish it, but I could tell that it was important to him. And uh, I mean, this child, as you can imagine, was absolutely filthy by the time he came back to where I was, because he's got the dust all in him and whatever, who cares, right? For him, I think the question was, can I do this? And he proved to himself that he could. And on the way home that night, he basically was talking about it. And he was talking about what a good memory that's going to be. I'm tearing up talking about this. You can see it, Tom, Janet, you can see it. Because, and that night I had to throw him in the tub when, you know, he got home because it was everywhere. And he even recognized at that age, he's like, you know, a lot of parents wouldn't have let that happen. Yeah, wow. yeah, that's true. And that he wouldn't have had that memory if somebody had stopped him. Yeah. Now to an adult, it can look like frivolous. I'm crying, you guys. <laughs> it can look like this frivolous, why are you doing this behavior? But this child learned something about his ability to set goals, to accomplish a goal that he could do it, which is everything to Mm -hmm. a child, Mm -hmm. everything. Yeah. Yeah. And having the space to do that, being allowed to do that, you're standing back, as Tom said, as the, as the observer, as the researcher, and we don't know what was going on in his head. I love that at the beginning of our conversation today, before we hit record, Tom said, I don't know if I have anything to say. (laughs) (laughs) Tom. (laughs) I think our listeners will disagree. Uh, For me, I have a couple of powerful takeaways. Observe, observe, stand back, prioritize emotions, Mm -hmm. prioritize the child who needs emotional support over really anything when it comes to organizing your priorities. Janet, what are some of your takeaways? 
Well, I love the yes space. Yes, absolutely. And encourage parents to figure out how to, how to have that yes space. And, you know, the other piece of just having this village and the longing for our elders to be with young children. And my dad in his nineties, we would go, he was in assisted living and we would go to the grocery store and he would just light up when a child came near him or walked down the aisle, he would be reaching out and you could just tell it was so enlivening. And I think we are we are worse off for separating our generations and the kids are too. Um, so whenever we can um, facilitate multi-generational spaces or gatherings, it's to the benefit of all of us, for, mm-hmm. for the young, for the old, for those of us in the middle who are just grateful that the young and the old can connect and we can like <sighs> breathe. You know, I'm thinking right now that we, we're actually in a great opportunity moment because we keep reading about how employers are having a hard time getting employees right now. And part of it is because during the pandemic, people found out they wanted to be home with their kids and be around their children more. And they found out, you know, I might only need one income or I can work from home and get, you know, make almost as much. And, you know, it might behoove employers to start putting preschools in the middle of the workspaces to put daycares and and, and those kind of things. So parents can be there with their kids, go have lunch with their kids during the day and make that one of the benefits because it would... It would not just benefit the parents. It would not just benefit the children. I promise it would benefit the corporation because suddenly you would have happier, more productive parents working there in this place, especially your female employees. And not only that, as I was talking about this, we I live right here on the amazon.com campus. And there's a lot of you know early 20 year olds who've gotten jobs here. Mm-hmm. And I was talking to this one guy the other day and I sort of mentioned this idea and he said, I would go, I would go volunteer in the preschool if there was one here at Amazon. Because what it does, it makes us smarter people to hang out with kids. It makes yeah. us more creative and it makes us more, um, it puts things in perspective for us. And so having children in the middle of society would make a better society. It makes a healthier society. And without with children on the fringe, we'll never make a great society for kids. Oh, Janet and I are both just breathing and we'd like to um, put you in charge of helping to reorganize the world. We will follow and help. We are, this is what we're doing. I mean, I can't change the world by myself. Janet, you can't, Tom, you can't either. But in our little spaces, we work, we make these differences. When you help one child, you are changing the future. I strongly believe that. And listeners, that is as true for you as it is for each of us. Yeah. Tom, tell our listeners where they can reach out and find you. Okay, so my blog is on Blogspot. So if you just Google Teacher Tom, you'll find it. TeacherTom'sBlog.blogspot.com is the URL. But you know, everybody loves Teacher Tom. There's probably a Facebook page for that. There is a there's a Teacher Tom Tom Facebook page, and you know, I wish it was everybody. It's not everybody. You know, I've got some haters out there, and (laughs) I I I gore a lot of sacred cows, and. the, uh, I guess the other thing I just want to mention, if it's okay, is uh, Teacher Tom's Play Summit is coming up. Definitely. Uh, Tell June, us about that. June, well, it's June 20th through 25th. It's free. We've got 26 presenters on parenting and early childhood education. People, some of them you probably know, people like Laura Markham, uh, Maggie Dent from Australia. If you don't know her, she oh, is the queen of common sense. And we've she's, had her on several right? times. We love Maggie. We've got yeah. Maggie on there. Akila Richards, maybe, uh, an unschooling guru, um, just an amazing, powerful person. We've got a whole panel of unschooled parents actually talking about their reasons uh, for why they're doing it and how they're doing it. 
Um, so in, 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 a, in a lot of other sort of parenting type uh, advice and counsel, but also early childhood, because to me, parenting and early childhood education, yeah. if they're not married, um, then we're doing it wrong. Mm -hmm. um, the two go hand in hand and, and educators and parents need to be allies with each other in this process. So anyway, um, you know, teachertomsplaysummit.com, you can go and get your free pass there. Um, even if this airs after it, you could still go on there and, and get free access to all of these incredible speaker. Peter Gray is there. Oh, love um, him. There's, there's, there's just a lot of people I'm sure that your listeners would be excited by. Uh, and just, they, you know, we, we actually went out of our way to get um, several indigenous speakers. Uh, because we really wanted to hear the vision for this. And I think this is this should be our vision for everything we do as community anymore is, is um, Hopi Martin, who is an Ojibwe um, tribe member. Uh, he's an educator in near Toronto. And he's, he talked about this metaphor that's just so simple and so beautiful about, about the campfire. And we come to the campfire and we're all coming around the same campfire and we're all sitting around this campfire and we all bring with us all our, you know, we call it baggage, but it's our ancestors, it's our history, it's our, it's our positives and negative. We all, so we each come with a different perspective to look at this fire. So right away, we're seeing a different fire. But not only that, just literally, we're just seeing it from a different perspective. And until you've heard from every single person sitting around that fire, you don't know anything about that fire. You have an incomplete knowledge. And I love that our, uh, Brenda Souter, our Maori uh, educator, she said, you know, the way we think of this is that, you know, we don't have, we don't have this idea of linear time, right? We have this idea that everything still exists and it's just like a big balloon that's getting bigger and bigger. And what I love to think about is the idea that I've got my ideas, you've got your ideas. And instead of making them competing ideas, how about we see how we can use all of our ideas to make our ideas bigger than they are? And so that's kind of where, you know, that's the concept behind the summit. And it's, it's, that's why I want, you know, because parents and educators, if we ally ourselves together in the name of children, nothing on this earth can stop us. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, please share it with a friend. And if you can, please consider supporting our sponsors. When you support them, we are able to better support you. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.